This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined, as always, by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. Folks, I'm not just making this stuff up. It is the number one stock investing radio show in America. But all of our listeners on podcast and radio get a bonus Chris Hill to themselves. Chris, welcome back. I'm just wondering what my children would think about the prospect of a, a bonus Chris Hill. I think, I think they're having, you know, they're fine with just the one. But yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to see you. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. Last night at dinner, for reasons that go past explaining, we shuffled who sits in what seat. And we put one of, one of my sons in my usual chair. And my wife commented, hey, maybe you should try making some terrible jokes. I guess the implication <laughs> being that that's my function at dinner. So just it's it's spectacular stuff. I'm sure your kids are like my kids. Hey, um, Let's talk about some stuff having to do with business, economics, investing, and the stock market. That is, after all, what you do with a lot of your time when you're not being a dad. What do you make of the news that emerged as we recorded this? We're recording this on a Tuesday. The, the news emerged yesterday that a federal judge has lifted the requirement that airlines maintain a mask mandate. We cover the aviation industry a good deal on this show. What do you think? Good, bad, from an economic standpoint, from a moral standpoint? What do you think? I'm not going to speak to the moral standpoint, but I, I think from an economic standpoint, it's, um, you know, whether or not this gets challenged, um, whether or not this holds up, I, I, I think this is where we are headed. Um, um, you and I were chatting earlier and I uh, only half jokingly said, I think this is the great reopening part deux, um, because roughly a year ago at this time, you and I were talking about the great reopening, which happened in the summer of 2021. It sort uh, of happened. We had the ha- hot vac summer for like two weeks. Yeah. And then, well, it, it didn't go great. It didn't go great. Um, but I think, you know, as we have more people vaccinated, boosted, um, people getting COVID, uh, you know, building up their immunity. Um, this is where we are headed. Um, by the way, uh, there are still plenty of people who are going to wear masks. Like the, 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 the mask mandate being lifted does not mean if you get on a plane in a few days or even in a few weeks, you're not still going to see lots of people wearing masks. People will still wear masks. It won't be required, but there are lots of people who will do it by choice. Um, and so I, I think that on balance, uh, this is a good thing because this is, this is where we're headed. Um, more people are going to be traveling more people are going to be going out more states and localities are going to be lifting mandates. And, um, I, I think, um, while and we'll get to global supply chain in a little bit here, um, while that still will be a challenge for businesses, I think in general, 
um, it's good for the economy to have um, uh, fewer barriers to um, to travel and and the world opening up. Is the market reacting particularly one way or the other? Or as you say, since the sort of baked into the cake to some extent that this is the direction the world is going, is the market kind of meh in the whole thing? Um, I, th- I would say it, it appears to be slightly positive. Um, that's not to say that um, I or you or anyone else should run out and buy lots of airline stocks, because um, I don't think that's a great idea. But I do think that it is being viewed as one piece of the puzzle and when you finish the puzzle, it looks like um, a stable economy for the U.S. and the world. Um, look, there are lots of other challenges out there. I mentioned the supply chain issues. Um, you, all you have to do is look at what's happening in China and, and the Chinese government's um, dealing with uh, COVID in that country um, to know that it's not going as well as things are here in the U.S. Uh, the uh, war in Ukraine continues. Um, But this is one small positive step. On the slightly lighter side of the news, and I guess we should find this somewhat light, somewhat funny. It's really not. It it relates to some very serious businesses and some very serious effects in society. I guess we have to talk about Elon Musk and his attempted takeover, if that's what we should call it, for $43 billion of Twitter. Now, look, On this show, we have talked at length about social media. In fact, Chris Hill, you were a guest on another show that we do beyond politics to talk about Facebook and the algorithm and the Facebook business model. You and I have talked extensively about Facebook versus Apple and different visions for social media and tech and how we all relate to each other online in the future. So we take social media very, very seriously on this show. But it's kind of, I, I, I got to say, this has kind of a kooky element to it when Elon Musk is involved and there's Tesla and there's Mars and there's SpaceX. And now for some reason, he's in on Twitter. What do you make of all this? The greatest showman in America and possibly the world. That's, that's what one thought I have about this. Um, you know, putting aside space travel, putting aside electric vehicles and, and the um, trillion dollar company that Tesla is that Elon Musk um, has created. Um, he's an incredible showman. And, and I think this is uh, a great example of that because Twitter, I, I would argue that Twitter has outsized influence in America. And I say that because this is not a big company. This is a, a third at the moment, about a $35 billion company. Uh, that it is one thirtieth the size of Tesla. Um, it is not as big as Facebook. It, it, not even close. Apple, any of these other companies. Um, so uh, Twitter gets um, credit for being, in some ways, the most effective quick news vehicle that has been created. There have been times over the past five years where. I get a text from someone about breaking news. I go to Twitter and I will find it more quickly on Twitter than I will find it on a news site uh, or if I turn on a television. Um, I know I'm going to find it quickly on Twitter. Um, It doesn't mean Twitter is a great business. Um, If you bought shares at the IPO, you have not been rewarded uh, for 
um, for the entirety, it's been a public company. Um, so Musk's interest in this is curious on a couple of levels. Um, he has used Twitter largely to his benefit. It's interesting to think about Twitter as a private company, in part because it would probably do better as a private company than it has been as a public company. It hasn't been a success as a public company. Um, my question, uh, and by the way, all this happened last week while I was on vacation. Um, I was with uh, my wife and son. We were in New Mexico. I was largely off the grid, but I was, you know, I would look at my phone from time to time. I would look at Twitter and I saw all of this happening and I thought, boy, I'm glad I'm not at the office. Um, and my question, now that we are more than a week removed from this news first breaking, my question is, is he going to go through with it? Because I'm not sure he is. And if I was at a sports book in Vegas and I could bet $10, which is not a huge sum of money, that this doesn't actually go through, I think that's how I would bet. If you're a shareholder in a company that is the target of a takeover like this, is there a sort of a rule of thumb for how you should think about this? I mean, this is not the last nor is it the first time that this kind of thing will happen. And, and this may apply to lots of our listeners. Do you have any guidance for them of, you know, it's like a pamphlet you might get in a doctor's office. So your stock is the target of a buyout. What, you know, like, what do you do? What, how do you think about that? It, it, how do you think through that? Just kind of in a, in a nutshell, or maybe there's not a nutshell version of it. No, it's, it's an important question, Matt, because um, it, it applies to so many more businesses that are out there. And it can be a business being taken private by a private equity firm, in which case the deal is probably done. There's not a whole lot you can do as a shareholder. You just sort of get the money in your account at whatever the buyout price is. Um, uh, this happens sometimes when uh, other companies will acquire and they'll pay cash. Um, sometimes they'll buy with their own stock and then, they, and then you become a shareholder of that stock. That's how um, my oldest daughter became a Disney shareholder because when she was young, um, I bought her a couple of shares of Marvel Entertainment, which was a standalone public company at the time. And Disney had made a couple of Marvel movies and said, we like this so much, we're just gonna buy the whole company. And they bought it with Disney stock. Um, so I think anytime you're in the position where you own shares of a company, and either an individual like Elon Musk or a private equity firm or um, another public company comes in and says, we're going to buy this stock we're or you know, we're, we're going to make a hostile takeover. I think you just have to decide um, what do I want to do if I have options? Sometimes you don't have options. They're just going to buy it. You get the cash in your account and that's it. But other times you kind of do have to make a decision like, well, okay, do, do I want to be a shareholder? I, I was a shareholder of company X. Now company Z is buying them with their own stock. But do I want to be a shareholder of company Z? Um, if I do, then I hold on. Um, if I don't, then maybe I just sell my shares to someone else and let them become a shareholder of company Z. First of all, Company Z would be an outstanding name for a rock band. And second of all, it does seem like this Twitter story has taken a lot of oxygen on Twitter, um, of all places, but of course, in all the other news outlets. And so I was very surprised to learn from you as part of our run-up to this show that there's been some developments on the Amazon front. And 
they come in the form of the annual shareholder letter. Now you've given this a much closer read than I have. I know that because I have not read the letter, but you have, what did you take away from this? You think this is significant? I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. One, Amazon is a far more important company in America and more impactful to the economy of the US than Twitter is. Uh, It's a much bigger company. Um, The the other reason I think this is important is um, this is the first shareholder letter from Andy Jassy, who is the CEO who took over for Jeff Bezos. So it's the first shareholder letter to come from someone not named Jeff Bezos. Um, That being said, um, and I say this as an Amazon shareholder, um, it it reads like a letter that could have been written by Jeff Bezos. Um, Jassy is very much the... um, uh, the right pick. Uh, we thought that at the time that he was uh, named the succeeding CEO, and uh, this letter is just more proof as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, in terms of takeaways from the letter itself, Jeff Bezos, early in his career running Amazon, said that one of his aspirations for Amazon was that it would be the most customer-focused company in the world. Um, the word customer appears more than 50 times in Andy Jassy's letter. Um, He is clearly as focused on Amazon's customers as Bezos was. Um, He made his bones at the company by running Amazon Web Services, uh, which powers so much of the internet. There are so many companies that are are using Amazon Web Services. Um, And uh, one of the questions about AWS for a number of years has been, gosh, what would this be worth if it was a standalone company, if it got spun off, if Amazon just decided we're going to spin this off as a separate business, it could unlock all this value. And Jassy sort of put that to rest for the foreseeable future, um, partly with the letter and partly with an interview he did on CNBC, where he said, look, whenever anyone talks about spinoffs, you need to ask the question, well, what is the benefit to spinning off a business? And a lot of times it's to raise money to fund that business. But as he said, AWS is funded pretty nicely on its own um, through its own operations. Um, The last takeaway I have from the letter is we got some insight into how Jassy and his team think about uh, new gadgets. Um, If you've ever read a book on a Kindle or you use the Amazon Fire Stick on your television or maybe you have an Alexa device in your home. Um, he, he, Jesse talked about something called an MLP. Now in investing, when I hear MLP, um, I, I think master limited partnership, um, which is um, an investment vehicle uh, for Jassy and the team at Amazon. MLP stands for minimum lovable product. And he outlined the approach that they take when they're making gadgets is, Look, we want people to love this product, but it's going to be the death of innovation if we try to make it perfect. We don't want to slow ourselves down. We don't want to launch a product that's garbage, but we don't want to wait until it's perfect. We want it to be lovable in a minimum way so that enough people who buy it feel good about it. And we know we can continue to iterate and make it better as time goes on. But I just love that idea. Minimum lovable product. You know, it just reminds me of this concept that I read about in a Time Magazine article of all things years ago from 
a longtime advertising executive who uh, coined the acronym Maya, most advanced yet acceptable, which was his way of saying the public will only tolerate a certain amount of innovation. They want something that is acceptable, but they want something that's a little bit better, pushing the envelope a little new. And there's a sweet spot in his own. Anyway, I found that super helpful and super insightful. I feel like I've got to ask just to stick on the shareholder letter for, for just a moment. I obviously come out of a career in politics and government and Capitol Hill, where every year the big annual exercise in our government is the State of the Union speech. And there it is worked on by a whole team for months. And then there's endless iterations, practices, and up to the very last minute, different presidents will be putting in handwritten notes. I'm just wondering if you have any insight, not necessarily into Andy Jassy's process, but when you talk about these big corporate titans and these giant companies where these shareholder letters, there's a lot of money that hinges on what you're saying. These are really important to the market, to the economy. What kind of process goes into creating an annual shareholder letter? Do, do we know, do we have insights into this? Is this a team effort or is Andy Jassy sitting down at a keyboard and saying, huh, how many times can I write customer? A lot of times um, the CEO is the one driving the process. It doesn't mean they're the only person who, who writes that letter. Although my understanding is that Warren Buffett, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway writes those letters um, and um, I guess Carol Loomis, a, a longtime uh, associate, uh, maybe helps with them to some degree. But um, my sense is that Jassy, um, if he didn't write the entire thing, um, he was certainly the driving force. And here's the thing, um, you know, their name goes on it. So ultimately, the CEO, whether the CEO is the one writing it, whether they are... Um, they have a team that works on it and drafts it, and then they review it. Ultimately, they're the ones signing the letter. Um, so if I were a CEO, I would want to be heavily involved in that process, and I would approve every word. Um, it doesn't mean I wouldn't take input from people on my team, um, because let's face it, uh, CEOs have different skills. Um, not every CEO is a great communicator. And so, um, again, their name has to go on it, but uh, let's face it, not, not everybody can write. And you don't, look, if Andy Jassy couldn't write as a shareholder, I would not want him spending like a week of his time, you know, picturing him in an office, crumpling up paper, throwing it in a wastebasket and starting over again, writing longhand. Not that he would do that, but uh uh, but no, I, 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 again, they, their name goes on it. So they, they better be involved. Yeah, that's why our economy has services, right? Like if your right. thing is not mowing the lawn, there are services for this kind of thing. That's, that's the brilliance of a capitalist economy. Hey, you introduced, speaking of ideas in a capitalist economy, you introduced an idea to me a, a, a few minutes ago that there's something new going on on Wall Street right now. You said that, it's possible that Wall Street collectively is starting to give companies the benefit of the doubt. And I have to admit, that is a common English phrase, but I have no idea what it means in this context. Chris Hill, what do you mean that Wall Street is starting to give companies the benefit of the doubt after months of not giving companies the benefit of the doubt? 
I hope I'm right about this. So I'm, I'm basing this on uh, Johnson & Johnson's latest earnings report, which I'll get to in a minute. But I've been saying on Motley Fool Money for months now, um, as we're just about to enter earnings season, um, the previous er- earnings season, January and February mainly, um, no company was getting the benefit of the doubt. The market was falling. Um, there were big, profitable businesses that were coming out with their quarterly earnings report. Their profits were higher than expected. Their revenue was higher than expected. They were raising guidance. And normally that is the the one, two, three punch we love to see. And historically that leads to a stock moving higher based on the results and the guidance. And we were seeing companies coming out, great results, raising guidance, and their stock was selling off 5%, 10%. And it was clear that the environment on Wall Street was nobody's getting the benefit of the doubt. Again, some of the biggest companies out there, NVIDIA, a hugely important chip company, uh, not getting the benefit of the doubt. So um, Johnson & Johnson came out this morning with their latest results. It was really good. It was not perfect. Um, they actually lowered guidance for the rest of the fiscal year just slightly. And Middle of the day today, shares of Johnson & Johnson were up 3%. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, this would have been Johnson & Johnson, you know, selling off. Instead, it's, it's hitting a new high. Um, this is the bluest of the blue chip stocks, as far as I'm concerned. And um, again, it's just one piece of evidence. We're really at the beginning of earnings season. So we will, I'll know more in a couple of weeks. If, if more companies are getting the benefit of the doubt or, or if this was just a one-time thing with J&J, uh, but I, I hope I am right about this. It must be refreshing after your many years of doing this and your daily show, which is, I've heard, the number one stock investing radio show in America. It must be kind of nice for you to still get surprised from time to time by something that's paradoxical and maybe even perverse in that it really goes the opposite. I felt this way about economic news in recent months as Every single piece of economic news has been so good, except for inflation, which I got to admit is a wicked bummer. It's not great. It's bad news, but good gracious, like every single piece of economic news is otherwise great. And people's reaction is, yeah, the economy is as bad as we get. People's ratings of the economy are as bad as during the Great Recession. It's kind of hard to figure. But since you just alluded to the fact that earnings season is starting, um, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to give a, ourselves a bookmark because we're going to come back on in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about it more. But let's give just a little hint, like a little preview. What are you watching for over the next couple of weeks as these kinds of uh, indicators start to emerge? So one thing I'm always interested in, <coughs> excuse me, is uh what do people say on conference calls? Uh, the, the I'm interested in the results, but I'm also interested in what do CEOs say when they are questioned by analysts. I think the phrase supply chain is going to continue to come up, um, and it's just a question of um, how often and and in how many industries. Um, I wish that wasn't the case, um, but I think it's it's going to be important to hear from major retailers and major suppliers um, what they are seeing in terms of their own supply chain. And, um, and how it sort of ripples out through the economy. Um, Starbucks is r- reporting in early May. Howard Schultz, the founder of the company, is back for his third 
time around the block as CEO. He's technically the interim CEO, um, but I'm assuming he's going to be on the call. It'll be interesting to hear what he says about um, that business and sort of ostensibly the search for a new CEO, which is uh, something he is reported to be helping with. Um, I'm not going to hold my breath on that, but uh, I'll be curious to see. Um, and more immediately, Netflix uh, reports uh, after the closing bell today, Tuesday. Um, and I'm not a Netflix shareholder, but they really do set the tone for the entertainment industry. Um, I'm sure they'll be questioned, as they almost always are, about whether or not they're going to launch an ad-based version of their service. Um, I don't think they're going to do that, but I'm sure they'll get the question. But it'll be interesting to see um, what insight we can get in terms of their audience, um, what they're spending on original content, uh, and international growth. I'd like to make my very quick case in under 20 seconds that Howard Schultz is the greatest CEO in American history. Why? Because he convinced America that selling burnt coffee in Italian-sized cups at <coughs> astronomical prices was somehow good and that people would want to buy this product. Howard Schultz is an evil genius. He is the <laughs> Kaiser Sose of American CEOs. Well, on that note, we are going to have to wrap. Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, thanks so much. Thank you.